0: Coming up on Art Palace. If you or I stop and think about, you know, all the microbes in our guts are floating around <laughs> yeah. us all the time. You know, if you if you really think about that, you will go mad. There's so much reality <laughs> right. in this
1: story. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Cedric Rose from the Mercantile Library's podcast, The 12th Story. This is actually kind of a crossover episode with The 12th Story. While they normally cover literature and we normally cover art, we decided to join efforts and talk about both. Since it's October, Cedric and I read the short story From Beyond by H.B. Lovecraft, and then discussed it in relationship to our special exhibit, Anna England, Kinship. Um, I think it would be good to just maybe we should start by talking a little bit about what we're going to do and maybe actually uh, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about um, uh, the Mercantile Libraries podcast as well and what you do and so it'll kind of help frame why we're doing this today. Great. Um,
0: Well, yeah, I guess I'm sort of um, we're hybridizing here with our podcasts. (laughs) uh, Also another sort of organic um, metaphor that I think ties in nicely. But um, I'm from the Mercantile Library. My name's Cedric Rose. I've been the collector there for about 12 years. And several years ago, we started The Twelfth Story, which is a podcast about books, culture, pretty much everything. Um, and just happy to be here.
1: Yeah, well, and so I thought we would uh, do this episode with you kind of as a little bit of a combination. Like you're saying, where we're, we we picked a a work to read and then we're going to talk about it in relationship to this exhibition, which is on England, Kinship. Um, So we're not going to look at just one piece in in particular, we're going to kind of talk about the major themes of the show, maybe talk about some specific pieces uh, here and there. But the uh, piece of fiction we read was from beyond uh by hp lovecraft which is a short story a very short story actually uh which made it nice for this case that so we didn't have to trudge through like a, a, one of his lengthier pieces this is like a super quick read um but yeah do you should you think do you typically on your show do a little bit of a recap of we do we do a yeah. bit of a recap um just to kind of catch people yeah. up, yeah, I mean, I feel like this story is kind of a is it's kind of hard to spoil it because it's far it's pretty light on plot like there's not like a, the premise is the plot, basically, like there isn't a lot else that happens apart from like the basic premise so i mean do you do you want to describe it for folks oh yeah, I'd love to. Um,
0: you know, on its surface, uh, and of course, Lovecraft, um, beginning with Lovecraft, he was really unknown during his lifetime, H.P. Lovecraft. But he was um, a writer of essentially pulp fiction, and specifically pulp horror fiction. Um, but the premise of From Beyond really is comes down to uh, a very familiar situation, I think, to everybody, which is a falling out between friends. Except these aren't just any friends, this is... Um, the narrator's friend is a, an inventor of sorts, a psychologist. Is that yeah, accurate?
1: Yeah, he's described as like a science of physics and metaphysics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so the narrator has actually been kicked out of the house for kind of razzing the guy about this invention that he purports to have created, which will um, allow them to have vision into sort of this realm beyond reality. Right. Um, so eventually he gets called back to the house and he finds his friend in pretty horrible shape. He doesn't seem to have slept. Uh, he's emaciated. He's turning into a madman. And um, as things unfold, I think um, Crawford Tillinghast, who is the central character of the story, um, seems to be using the narrator uh, to further his experiment. Right. Um, The servants are all gone. They've uh, apparently evaporated in their clothes (laughs) in an earlier experiment. And then um, it's a little difficult to describe. I I definitely would recommend to the the listeners, you have to read the story for yourself because it's downright surreal. But um, Tillinghast tries to convince the narrator to sort of look into this realm um, and seems to expect that He will meet the same fate as the servants. Yeah. Um, And the narrator, I
1: I don't know that I want to spoil it, Russell. There's, well, I I, mean, there there is at the very, uh, let's not spoil it. We don't have to spoil the like end of it. But I mean, I think uh, even while I said, you know, there's not a lot of plot really to describe it. Almost just becomes this like visual, like it's an excuse to go through like crazy. things he, all the crazy stuff he's seeing. So it's, 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 it's almost very like psychedelic of like describing all these different things. And even the way he's describing them kind of like melting into each other, like what he, is happening around him in the laboratory where he's sitting with Tillingast. And then the way that will like turn into other things that he's seeing in this other realm, you know, or other dimension that he's able to witness. So, yeah, I mean, there isn't actually, I feel like, too much to spoil, especially at the end. You know, there's this little bit of a twist that we don't have to go into. There's a very pulpy denouement. We'll we'll say that much. Um, (laughs) We can leave that out
0: there. But can I just say that, um, you know, by the third paragraph, I was literally reading the prose, which the prose, I think, is the man, just the writing style is amazing. But uh, in the voice of Rod Serling, I mean, it (laughs) was literally like, there is a fifth dimension beyond what is known. You get to this sentence, we shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion, peer to the bottom of creation. Yeah. You're thinking, this, this has some vibrations out into pop culture. Lovecraft definitely, you oh. know... And the horror genre, I think, capitalizes heavily on what Lovecraft specialized in in a lot of his work that I think From Beyond typifies, which is the thin veneer between... I think we can hear vibrations from 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 beyond right now. What is that? The thin (laughs) veneer, uh, if that's the right word, between uh, civilization and sort of this primordial savagery, which uh, they find themselves peering into. And it's it's madness, it's boundless complexity, it's infinity. um, And ultimately, um,
1: well hilarity does not ensue <laughs> depending on i guess uh, how funny you like you, you you're really into his writing style i could imagine some people like really hating his writing style too i can i i mean i sometimes laugh at it because it is so over the top like the first line of it i don't know do you have it there i remember horrible
0: how beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend exactly Crawford Tillinghast.
1: <laughs> i mean the sentence the structure of that sentence is so like lovecraftian where it begins with horrible beyond conception. It was like, you know, he doesn't tell you you don't even know what he's talking about yet but we started with horrible beyond conception, you know. It's so over the top and even, you know, this one, I think I read, was written in 1920. 20. That's right. Not published until like um, he after he died, I think the same year. Yeah. Um, but it, it's like he's always like writing as if he's like, in the 19th century or something? Like, there's a little bit of this, like, faux, archaic prose going on. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jack
0: London, who I guess was kind of, like, one of the first major, majorly, you know, the J.K. Rowling of Pulp Fiction. Right, right. And, you know, it's a theme in um, London that um, our civilized lives are, are really just, like, you know, actually seconds away from tumbling into chaos. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but a major difference here is that for th- in this story, it's a machine. You know, it's, it's the machine is sort of like, rather than the narrator's inability to light a match during a snowstorm. Right. Well, I guess that could be construed as a machine. But I also... <laughs> yeah, um, that's a type of ma- <laughs> but, I, but I also, you mentioned that he wrote this in 1920, and I looked a little bit at the chronology of his life, and... Um, combined with a sense that there was maybe a little tongue-in-cheek um, happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1920, he actually went to work as a ghostwriter for a psychologist, David oh. Van Bush, um, who he really did not cotton to. I mean, he put up with them to make money. But um, when you kind of... I couldn't help but sort of, you know, wonder is David Van Bush, Crawford, telecast. Oh. <laughs> um, especially when... Um, is so, this excellent biography of Lovecraft. I have not read the whole thing, but um, a dreamer and a visionary, H.P. Lovecraft, in his time, S.T. Joshi. But, uh, so Lovecraft um, <laughs> describes David V. Bush as totally the opposite of Tillinghast, right? He's a short, plump fellow, of about 45, with a bland face, bald head, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Kind, affable, winning, and smiling probably has to be in good order to induce people to let him live after they have read his verse, so you know, uh I think lovecraft was not beyond a biting way yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah he's he's an interesting person, certainly, and I mean we should probably also mention like. There's some pretty unsavory things about Lovecraft too. Before like anyone construes this as like a ringing endorsement of him as a person, because while uh, you know I think he has some really fascinating ideas and and really interesting things, like it doesn't take too long before reading a lot of his stuff before you go like, wait, was that just like really racist what I just read? And like it happens pretty often actually. Like you know you'll you'll be reading something and just like. It's, you know, it's just really kind of gross and and there's all sorts of these, um, in addition to racist thoughts, there's a lot of xenophobia too that comes across where it's like anyone who is like the other, you know, becomes yeah. like essentially an alien, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to see his parallels drawn there where it's, it's, so there's some gross ideas, but they don't, they're not like, this piece doesn't really have that in it. And so I think you can weed through that if you're willing to, if you're willing to kind of see past that, you know, maybe his less savory uh, aspects.
0: And I definitely, you know, I, I'm not saying that my bizarre thesis is actually, actually has anything to do with this story, but I definitely, began to approach it on subsequent readings as um, Lovecraft is this frustrated artist. Yeah. And thinking of him in terms of the artist and then also looking at uh, England's, you know, body of work, you know, he, from very early on, as a, as a child even, was having these almost hallucinatory dreams of space and fantasy. And you get the sense with this story that, um, you know, he's both making fun of psychology, perhaps, but also, you know, realizing in a short story, this concept of the artist, you know, dipping beneath the level of consciousness and, and realizing these primordial forms, these primeval forms, which again, I, I'm sitting here in this beautiful gallery, uh, this show in particular, I mean, you've got these raku fired surfaces that, uh, kind of be- beguile but confuse you would confuse me at least yeah i'm easily confused at the same time <laughs> um you know in much in the same way that this narrator is presented with this uh horrific but almost uh psychedelic situation is just trying to figure
1: out what the heck's going on and ultimately is pushed to the uh the ultimate breaking point. Well, you described that when you said the Raku fired um, surfaces, you're talking about Night Sky Spiral 2, which um, is a piece that belongs to the museum. It's been here for a while. It's kind of, we're sitting right next to it. And actually, this was one of those pieces that every time I, when I was reading this and I came across a quote that made me think of something in the show, um, I would highlight it. So this is one I, I took for that, which was. Um, I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky filled with shining, revolving spheres. And as it receded, I saw that the glowing suns formed a constellation or galaxy of settled shape. It's like pretty perfect. Like there's all these things where it's like he's seeing like galaxies within things and, you know, he's watching is like he it's it's the idea of scale is all kind of messed up, too, where, you know, I think even Tillinghast says something about, like, you think, like, form or size or something. He, he ta- has oh, meaning. Yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. We think it has meaning, but it's all an illusion. And it sort of plays on this idea that just when you think that you know what your place in the universe is, you're completely wrong. Yeah.
1: So this piece, like, I'd always... Uh, the way that these disks that sort of seem to contain universes get smaller and smaller as they go down... Um, it's always something I question of like what that sort of spiral means. Are they really smaller? Are they receding in space? What are we seeing here? And also it still seems like that, that little tiny disc seems to contain just as much, uh, volume as the larger ones, uh, because of this idea of like that they contain almost like infinite space. Um, so that that's one of these like interesting ideas that you know she's playing with that, and then the other big theme I thought of that you know we were kind of surrounded by several pieces that deal with this is like it's all about like this piece and this um this piece of fiction, and then the pieces in the show are often about like visualizing the unseen. You know, so we're sitting in front of these uh this piece that's called spatially extended right now. And it has these sort of planetoid like spheres in the middle of them, and then they're surrounded by these bowls, but they seem to almost be like visualizing gravity and like the way like space time is like warped around an object. They really do. I mean, I think they're actually altering the
0: soundscape of the room too. They're sort of I'm Terminal sure they are. Discs.
1: Yeah, cause they're huge too. Yeah. <laughs> so like, they, I'm sure they do mess with that. Not to mention we have this curved wall as well that I'm sure messes with sound too. Um, and there was something else I read in the, in the, in From Beyond. I'm not sure if I highlighted it or not, but he does like kind of talk about, you know, the very like, just like sky and blue air, you know, the, the, what we see around us. Like you think it's empty. Yeah. Um, and of course in, in Lovecraft's world, it's like, but it's filled with monsters. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's filled with well, hideous monsters. And here she's more like, it's filled with molecules. It's a little gentler view of it, but... Yeah. Uh, I, I literally thought of, um, you know, he's describing sort
0: of these jellyfish-like forms, and yeah. I thought of the first time I saw an amoeba eat a paramecium in a, under a microscope. And a lot of Englund's work includes... Also, these micro microorganism forms, yeah, like the radiolaria, diatoms, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of those pieces that are about like blowing up the you know microscopic to like a larger scale. There's a piece next door that's um, includes a like a, mo- a pollen molecule that's blown up, and so it it almost feels like some kind of otherworldly alien thing. And it's just like no, we're just looking at it at a different scale. Yeah. Um, but it, it, but it's it's sort of all happening. The story's happening at this
0: point in history where these new tools are emerging to see things like we've never seen them before. And if you or I stop and think about, you know, all the microbes in our guts are floating around yeah. us all the time. You know, if you, if you really think about that, you will go mad.
1: There's so much reality <laughs> right. in this story. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is one of the things that's nice about it. Is of course, he's taking it to this, like, the farthest reaches of the story, which is, you know, like, that there are horrible monsters that are just right behind you and, you know, you can't see them. But, um, you know, we do have, we're like filled with crazy, like creatures, like <laughs> tardigrades and stuff yeah. that are like just insane. Looking. Oh man. Tardigrades. I mean, that's like a Lovecraftian, a good strange creature. Yeah. Like that could be from like
0: Lovecraft right there. So can I just ask you, Russell, I have a question about this story, I guess, or so he, he arrives uh for the demonstration of this this device. Yeah. There's an eerie glow around it. You know, uh the device I think is either it's been on or it's switched on and you know all psychedelic hell breaks loose. But um Tillinghast is said at one point, Tillinghast is kind of yelling at him to like look at it, look at it, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And says he's told him that the servants have essentially evaporated, but he tells them that the servants don't worry, it's not painful. And he sees Tillinghast's face also, so so what do you think? I mean, what do you think's going on there?
1: Well, I don't think he ever turns around. I mean yeah, that's, no, I agree yeah, I agree. but
0: I mean what, what
1: do you mean do my, what qu- do I think my is question is, my
0: question is, so how does Tillinghass know that it's? It's painless.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a little confused by actually some of those. Like the narration of what happens with the servants is a little confusing because he seems to like say at one minute like, oh, they weren't killed by these things, and then like, but it seems like clearly they were. Like, I, I'm, I'm a little confused. I think he was specific at one point they when they see those jelly jelly uh, fish like creatures in this sort of other world, um, you know, he's saying that those are harmless, like, but basically you're aware there is something else. Yeah, the implication is something dark kind of came through the portal and got them. Yeah, and he's saying it's behind him at one point. So what I read that is, is that there is this whatever the horrible thing that did kill the servants is there with them at that moment. He can see it, uh, Tillinghast, I mean, can see it, but the narrator cannot, Um, and so that's because he's facing away from it. So yeah. and it, and it kind of makes it almost sound like, like almost that I interpreted it almost as like, like by looking at it, you're making yourself vulnerable to it as well was another way I kind of read it. But then again, like Tillinghast isn't, I don't know. Yeah. Then again, I don't know what happens to him at the end of the story. Kind of maybe who knows.
0: Yeah. You kind of wish Timothy Leary was here to participate in this conversation, like how, um, not, not, not to, you know, reduce it to sort of drug references, but um, the, the idea that the act of perception changes the perceiver uh, that plays out in all kinds of ways in this story. Yeah. And then there's also the possibility that if I was one of those servants, I would have just gotten the heck out of there a long time ago. <laughs>
1: so maybe, so maybe they're okay. They just uh, took off their clothes yeah, they r- or whatever. That is a weird part of the story too. Like it's a very, like I didn't even think about it when I was reading it, but I was like, wait, so why would like this otherworldly being consume them? And I guess it's just like, Oh, pl- uh, you know, trousers gross or whatever, like <laughs> spit out their britches. <laughs> It, it only uh,
0: it only has a taste for the organic part of their being, right? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't
1: doesn't want their uh, polyester knits or whatever they were wearing. <laughs> Probably a bit early for that in the twenties, but uh, we'll, we'll just pretend. a bit. Yeah, did you ever have you ever watched the movie? I've not. I haven't either. I was hoping you had because I was like, I I've, I've uh, so there was a movie in the eighties made. I remember when I was a kid, I would see the cover of it in the horror section of our local video store, which I was pretty obsessed with. So I would yeah. walk through and I always saw that like cover, which had this like creepy guy's face and his skin was all like stretched out. Um, um, I had heard
0: that that was one of the least bad um, sort of, you know, filmic adaptations of Lovecraft's work because it's, it's problematic, I think, to realize, you know, in that, that format, in a visual format, because it's so deeply internal yeah you you can imagine um screenwriters you know struggling to externalize this like these internal you know
1: well and, and a lot of his stuff is all about like unspeakable horrors so part of why it works so well on the written page is that he's not actually describing what you see or he is in the vaguest of ways and letting you fill in the gaps so then when somebody has to actually like make the thing you know it becomes a little you know, it loses some of that effect that y- your mind is making up the worst thing you can. Yeah. Um, from what I've seen of, from beyond, um, it, it, it does seem to capture this kind of like really gross, like body horror stuff where it's like constantly like, it looks like there's a lot of latex in that movie. <laughs> like just a <laughs> lot of like, you know, just weird, like people kind of lumpy forms. Like the, I think the scientists kind of transformed a lot by this. And, um, I've see, I, the, I haven't seen that, but I've watched "Reanimator," which is also based on a Lovecraft story and it has the same director, Stuart Gordon. Um, and so I mean it's, it's, it's probably a lot more playful as well than Lovecraft ever is, but that's also kind of I think probably why people enjoy it is that like it's not trying to be just this totally straight adaptation of it that takes itself super seriously. Yeah. It also understands like you can have fun with this stuff so.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting that this story in particular, there's no blood. It's a very bloodless, yet deeply, deeply disturbing short story.
1: Yeah, because it's all just about the idea again of like the the terror of the the very concept of it, that like that there is all this stuff happening around us and we can't see it. Um but if we just had this machine that would allow us to see it, we would be horrified by what we were able to see. And that, that works on so many different levels, too, of just, like, allegories for all sorts of things. It doesn't have to just be literally, like, we're talking about the sort of science of it with in relation to Anna England. But there's all sort of, like, political ideas one could take from that, too, about, like, systems happening around you that are kind of invisible but shaping things. I mean, that was one of the things that I thought about uh, when reading this story is, like, I wonder how these, like, creatures are actually interacting with our world you know if if this is happening are they influencing us in some ways are they like are is there some like interaction there that's invisible but is we're seeing the effects of the implications are truly you know mind-bending and
0: the the strange thing is science has borne out that yes we are constantly being influenced by invisible forces
1: well, um, I was thinking maybe uh, since we've kind of been standing in here, uh, maybe we could kind of walk into the other side of the gallery and maybe just check out some of the other pieces. And if anything sticks out to us that relates to the, the work we read or, or really any Lovecraft, we can kind of talk about those connections. So I was uh, my first hobby was microscopy.
0: Oh, really? Uh, so I love These um, glazed earthenware radiolaria, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, they're just pure um, geometrical forms realized organically.
1: Well, they they also, to me, I don't know, like they, I don't think they're supposed to be, but there is something very like aquatic about them and their shapes, like that, make me think of like sea life. And there's just a lot of those kind of shapes that are described in Lovecraft. Like a lot of his. Creatures. I mean, the most famous one, Cthulhu, which has this kind of like octopus tentacle head, everybody knows, and then like bat wings. And, um, so there's something about that. Like he recognizes, and I think Ana recognizes the kind of otherworldliness of aquatic stuff. <laughs> there's a couple of, uh, connections to, a, you know, aquatic life in this. There's a, another, uh, piece on, On these platforms that has sort of those shapes in it too
0: no i actually feel like i'm snorkeling right now
1: yeah yeah there's something and maybe it's also the palette the a lot of the blues and stuff that just make me think of under undersea creatures the craft
0: is amazing
1: oh yeah and again over here on this uh kind of opposite wall we have this uh, this piece could be kind of really perfect for thinking about uh from beyond because it's just called sense (laughs) <laughs> but it's all these antennae from like different creatures.
0: Yeah. You know, um, like the, the matter associated with this describing it uh, begins with all living creatures taken and process information from their surroundings. And another uh, just interesting factoid I took from the chronology of his life. 1920 was also when he wrote from beyond was also the, the year he began keeping a book of commonplaces Hmm. essentially just collecting information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very early on, he was just this, this real autodidact who was just interested in a lot of stuff. Earlier, One earlier entry reads something like, he has a near nervous breakdown, becomes interested in Antarctica. You know, and you kind of see, I, again, it's writers as artists, I think, are often just kind of trying to reconcile this onslaught of information yeah. and do something with it. And probably sculptors are too.
1: There's also, there's also something about, uh, and I, you know, I know Anna's father was a scientist, so I don't want to say like, she, she has no kind of actual science background, but I think there's something and I'm sort of maybe talking about myself a little bit here too, that artists can be really fascinated by sort of like the point where science starts to seem like magic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's sort of the intersection that we're most interested in. And, and I think, um, you know lovecraft is also sort of interested in these sort of unexplained things like what are what are the things we don't quite understand yet because that's where the magic still is right so it's like in that story it's it's He chooses the you know pineal gland as his point. Like, well, now we know what the pineal (laughs) gland does. It's not nearly as magical as it probably was when he wrote it. Which is kind of a shame. Right. Sort
0: of where where art kind of brings that magic back.
1: Right. But like, if you have this part of the body that you're just like, yeah, we don't know what it's for, and like maybe it's it's doing has some like ancient function that you know we we've lost or something. You know, it's 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 more exciting to to imagine, and that inspires a lot of uh, creativity. I think. really like this tethered setup where i'm tethered to you and we're we're moving (laughs) through the the gallery i know i get to i get to sort of pull you where i want so there's this raised platform in the middle of the gallery and it has these pieces that are called touching the earth touching the sea touching the sky and touching the future and one of the things he i noticed it was another piece i kind of highlighted in um from beyond was he's talking about being in some sort of like ancient temple with these like black columns rising up around him.
0: Right, yeah, there's this cathedral.
1: Yeah, and so this kind of, um, there's something about these shapes, these like, I've been calling them like basalt uh, columns. Uh, That's what they remind me of. I don't know if that's where Anna was going with them, but it seems pretty directly related to those. But they're, you know, they form these crazy like columns um, and they seem, it's like, weird point where it's like nature, but it feels so like architectural that it's like unsettling almost. Like this isn't, this just shouldn't, nature shouldn't look like this. Yeah, There's like too much design or something in it. Well, she says in her uh, statement
0: for this show that um, I think something like the forest is her cathedral or the woods are her cathedral. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I I love being outdoors also. And I think for a lot of people, um, you know, for example, the Japanese people, there's this Practice. They call it forest bathing, where you approach nature to be to actually kind of get back in touch with this infinite regress. Because you know, you look at the surface of a tree. There's this. There's moss. You get closer and closer, and it really does go onto infinity. I'm not, I'm not sure that's where you were going Ross. No, no. It's, it's fine. You can <laughs> g- go wherever you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I feel like we probably should at the very least talk about this piece over here that we we started talking about it, um early on uh called C, which was sort of the re- the first thing that I saw in this show that made me think of Lovecraft. Um you know, it, it literally looks like a Lovecraftian ancient horror on one, ha- on one side. But then in relation, to, uh, in relation to From Beyond, it's also just a great piece about perception, you know, and this like seeing in all these different angles with all these different eyes.
0: Absolutely, yeah. The, the eyes are just a different species. Um, they're extremely realistic. Even the ones that are sort of unidentifiable, you feel that they're peering at you. Yeah, and you know, um, I haven't read it, but you know, people there. There's a, a book out there right now talking about sort of the evolution of consciousness um, and what the octopus has to say about that, and the f- possibility that, the, that consciousness actually evolved in the deep. Oh, really? And you know, this piece just makes me think of that. That you know, we tend to think that we have um, consciousness is the you know sole province of us human beings, and right? It's just so not true and the implications of that are also
1: horrific <laughs> yeah well i mean this i think this is like an elephant eye right in the smack in the middle that i'm looking at that and it's right. it's got like you know it's got a real human touch to it doesn't it chameleon perhaps yeah i don't know the lizard ones are all pretty like
0: yeah, this was the one, the one that made me think octopus, but I have no idea.
1: Oh, yeah, that does look very octopi-like. I don't know, and yeah. the,
0: and then the the fact that the whole th- each of the eyes is part of this ge- almost geodesic sphere, um, you know, also kind of reminds you that our con- concept concept of an eye as a single point, you know, there are organisms that have these compound eyes, and mm-hmm. how do they see the world?
1: Yeah. There's something... uh, I love that she kind of buried the human down here at the very bottom.
0: (laughs) I totally missed that.
1: Yeah. There's a human eye um, right at the bottom. And actually, when we asked Anna for a list of like which species are which in this, um, for the human, she just wrote, Stephen. (laughs) <laughs> which her is her husband Her husband, yeah <laughs> but i just love that steven um and i think like her her dog is is one of them as well um Aww. i know isn't that cute <laughs> now, now not a lot of dog. yeah I, I yeah i'm not sure i i i i think it's that one right there that you just pointed at but i i'm not sure um this one just looks so like dragony like in so game of thronesy to me like this, yeah. it, it's hard to some of them every time i look at them i'm like that's a real creature that lives on this earth isn't that bizarre
0: the glazes that make the eyes shiny are just beautiful
1: yeah yeah they she does a great job of using that material to capture um, all the right textures of both the, the you know the skin or the fur in some instances and then the the glossiness of the eyes and it's really it's one of the you know she's she's using uh, there's a lot of other things like the bones that she's using clay to mimic or the claws and other shapes over there but um, this is like one of the few pieces in here that's kind of really I feel like using a, a I don't know Almost my, I, I want to, say, I'm trying to find a better word than what I wanted to say because it sounded too highfalutin. <laughs> I wanted to say like mimetic, but like trying to, you know, really imitate something else. Like she's not usually playing that game, I feel like, with us. Yeah, a number quite of them much. are
0: abstract, not abstract there, but yeah, I, I get your concept.
1: Yeah, like even these pieces where they feel pretty realistic with the, uh, touching the sky the future with the pollen and the sea creatures and all of that. Um, While they're, they're rendered very realistically by, by not glazing them um, with any, uh, nothing I can see, at least it looks just like straight fired clay Um, and keeping them white. They become a little more abstract. Yeah. And you know, it's, they are,
0: they're organic forms, but they're organic forms from that level where it's, like almost the abstract form suddenly becomes reality. like the, the line between the abstract and the real.
1: Yeah. And that's. Well, get, to me, they become cool. conceptual too. Like you, by having all of those and all of these different places, like, uh, you know, seeds and, and, butterfly, chrysalis, and pollen all look sort of the same. And by being, you know, they're all the same material. um, You stop thinking of it as like literally the thing and more about like, what's the thing mean? Um, And, you know, there's enough of a separation there that you can think of it more conceptually than quite so literally. But yeah, C. C is definitely a showstopper. You'll notice like lots of people stopping here when you walk through the gallery. Caught in the gaze of these many eyes. There's been probably lots of selfies with this one. <laughs> That's how we gauge success in museums now, selfies. <laughs> Do people want to take their selfie with this? Mm, all right. Good job.
0: <laughs> they, almost seem, they almost seem to dilate as you, as you walk past them. <laughs>
1: is it's this uh, uh, is this like the, the weird version of like if for this piece like this is like the thing that drives me crazy is like everyone who goes through a museum and are like the eyes follow you yeah totally the it's- eyes follow you. <laughs> and like and, and i'm always like no they don't it's just like the the person was looking at the artist or like they're looking straight ahead so it's like
0: but oddly, as I walk past this, you'll notice that eyes are following
1: me. <laughs> no, they're not. They, they're they are because literally... it's a sphere of eyes. <laughs> <laughs> st- what is this about? I, I think this like idea that the eyes follow you in art is just like, it, it is so bizarre to me. But I don't, it's it's almost like just a misunderstanding of like the way of, I mean, in this case, it's not. Flat, but in most cases, we're talking about like a painting where it's like the person in the painting was making eye contact with the person painting the picture. So it's like, yeah, if you're looking at it from the side, they're still staring kind of straight ahead. And if you're saying, you know, because they're,
0: they're still, yeah,
1: because it is a flat object. It is not, in fact, a, like a sculpture that's, you know, like if it was a sculpture, you would say. So I feel like this one, I'm like, no, they're not. They're like so clearly looking in every other direction. <laughs> I think it works.
0: I think by perceiving this object, it's changing how I am perceiving.
1: I think, I think part of it is just like, we want to make sort of that like eye contact with things. You know, even if they're inanimate, like Absolutely, you want to yeah. have that connection. Yeah. And so it's like, when you see all these eyes, it's like, it has that effect that you lock into it. It's just like when you're watching a movie and like the most like weird thing to happen is somebody looks straight into the camera, right? Like all of a sudden it breaks the fourth wall in the most like subtle way, but just like somebody staring into a camera is like disturbing because it's like suddenly they've made eye contact with you, the viewer. Um, but we want so badly to see that, that, that you know, it's really, it's this exact, the reason that works is the same reason people think like paintings follow them is, is the same way. Like we want to make that connection so easily. So.
0: No, I, I totally agree, and I think I, I need to step away from this. Uh, this <laughs> it's just too much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anything else you wanted to talk about in the in the show that we didn't address? I can talk about that story for another couple of hours. I have so many, weird, which is, weird
0: which, theories about it. Which but... is
1: impressive because it's like <clears throat> ten pages, probably. Yeah, right? you, know, you know. And
0: one thing, Maybe. not to disparage short fiction now, but you know, a lot of short fiction is this like um Iowa Iowa writers workshop you know very spare uh you know after Raymond Chandler you know uh, American creative fiction became sort of flatter and this yeah. is it's it's just impressive the density of it of what what he manages to pack into just a a couple of pages of prose
1: yeah i really i think it benefits from its it's brevity, honestly, and and you know I was saying I wanted to read like a much longer piece at first, and I'm glad we didn't because I think this piece packs so much punch in such a short amount of space. It's I I really like it for the same reason, and you know I was I was giving Lovecraft a little bit of a hard time for his language earlier, but I really like it, and I also think it's it's you know you mentioned right at the beginning that he was working in essentially pulp fiction. He's you know writing these stories that are published in magazines. And so I think that there may be some of that like loftiness to the language is, is part of why he has persevered, whereas a lot of those writers didn't, is he really did take it a lot more seriously. Um, and even though he, there are occasionally some pulpy twists and turns in it to keep the fans happy, like you can tell he was really thinking about it on a different level maybe than a lot of his peers were.
0: I have to ask. I think you're more familiar with his work, and I, I I just loved reading this story. I mean, what would you recommend next? I mean, there's the um, I'm going to mispronounce it. But there's uh, Cthulhu. How do you pronounce it? Cthulhu. Yeah, Cthulhu. Yeah, Thank the you.
1: Call of Cthulhu is a good one. Um, you know, it's probably his most popular piece, just because the like the Cthulhu creature has become sort of like a weird. I don't know, pop culture icon (laughs) in some strange way. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's an, it's longer than this one, but it's, it's really, um, I think it's rewarding. It's, it's a good read. Um, there's a few that I'll probably forget. There's one called like the color out of space, which is really interesting and I think has some relationships to from beyond and conceptually, um, and I almost want to stop and like, look things up now. Cause I can't remember the title. <laughs> That's the problem. No,
0: you give me a good start there. Though. That's
1: he, great because he has a lot of titles that are kind of interchangeable as well, that you kind of think back and you go, wait, was this the one where this happened or was this the one? like, you go, uh, yeah. there's a lot of similar ideas in a lot of his pieces, um, a really early piece that is fun for me, it's, it's maybe a little bit silly and has that like, pulpy twist to it is called, um, Pickman's model. And it's a, a about an artist, so I of course really like that. And it's about it, it's very it actually has a really fun. Now that I'm thinking about it, it, has a similar setup to From Beyond, where it's like a friend is visiting a friend's studio. <laughs> it's like it replace artist or replace scientists with artist, and you have pick. It, it's yeah. kind of a similar idea. There, I didn't even put this together until we're talking about. It. I'm like, oh yeah, those stories have a lot in common. But uh, Pickman's model has always been a really uh, favorite of mine, and it it's just. It's great because instead of science, it's using art. Um, and actually, even you know, when we go to Call of Cthulhu, um, in that piece, he talks about artists as well, almost as being like they're the people who start being affected by this um, monster, essentially. Or um, and so it's starting to like people are having visions and things, yeah, and the yeah. artists are <laughs> the ones who are like the most affected by it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it always also makes me think of um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where uh, the artists start sort of seeing Devil's Tower and, it, yeah. you know, so... Well, I have to say just one,
0: my last sort of association that was very powerful that came out of reading this in conjunction with thinking about art was um, of a woman sculptor who exhibited here in the Cincinnati Art Museum, Pat Rennick, who created these huge... Um, Hybridized monster machine forms. Oh, Triceratops yeah. is a Langsam library, and Stego Volkswagenosaurus is an NKU. And um, Pat also uh, she experienced electroshock therapy, Whoa. which set her on her path as an artist. So, um, you know, when I think about for her, for her at least, almost literally as an artist, I feel that she descended into this psychological realm and brought these forms back. And that was very, very strongly on my mind when I was reading it. and Especially now, standing in this gallery, again, like, it's almost like a Joseph Campbell, Freudian, except that Freud is made fun of in this story, (laughs) Um, Jungian, Jungian would probably be more appropriate uh, quality to this art that just, you feel that it will affect your dreams somehow. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for
0: joining me today, Cedric. Thank you. I hope that you will join us on our podcast at the Mercantile Library sometime.
1: I would love to. Give me something, uh, hopefully, short term. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Iris Von Erpen, Transforming Fashion, Anna England, Kinship, and William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance. If you like listening to us discuss literature and art, you might want to participate in See the Story, our bi-monthly book club in partnership with the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. Our next one will be on November 18th at 1130, and we will be reading Art of Rivalry by Sebastian Smee. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and even join our Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalau. And as always, please rate, review us, and subscribe on iTunes. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.